This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A federal judge ruled yesterday that State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is in contempt of court over his failure to produce records relating to the 2020 presidential election investigation. The Capital Times reports that when Voss was ordered to testify on his efforts to produce the requested documents, he gave the task to one of his employees who sent just a single email asking a contractor for those records. Also named in contempt is the entire state assembly who along with Voss have been ordered to produce the records within two weeks and pay $1,000 per day if they fail to do so. It is expected that those fines will be paid for with taxpayer dollars. State regulators approved a proposal today to build a new natural gas power plant outside of Wausau. The approval comes despite objections from the Citizens Utility Board, a private nonprofit that oversees utility companies. In a press release earlier today, CUB said that the $171 million facility was proposed to regulators by Wheat Energies and the Wisconsin Public Service Corporation. While the companies say that the plant is part of a move away from coal power, CUB says that they are concerned that the companies have not properly planned the facility and that it will lead to overbuilding and a rise in energy prices. A conservative lawyer who has previously sued to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election has announced her entry into the race for the state's attorney general. Karen Mueller of Chippewa Falls announced last week that she is entering the GOP primary for the position. In her press release, she said that, if elected, she intends to open an investigation into whether Wisconsin hospitals had murdered patients admitted with COVID-19. Mueller says that hospitals withheld treatment from patients with the virus in order to boost profits and said that doctors should have prescribed the antiparasitic drug ivermectin. Mueller is now the third GOP candidate to join the race, including Adam Jarkoff and Eric Tony. The highly infectious avian influenza has been discovered in Wisconsin's wild birds. The State Department of Natural Resources said today that a Cooper's hawk and a bald eagle from Dane County both tested positive for the virus. While the virus had previously been discovered in farm birds in the state, these are the first wild birds to be found with the virus. While there had not been any reported cases of this round of bird flu transferring to humans, the DNR still asks that you do not touch any sick or dead birds that you may come across and to contact the agency. Urban triage in Dane County has been awarded almost $9 million in rental assistance funds for residents of Dane County. Madison 365 reports. The center was set up to empower Black families in Dane County and to distribute resources to families. They were first awarded a contract last year to help distribute rental assistance funds in areas of Dane County outside of the city of Madison. They say they have already placed around 120 families into permanent homes with the help from the money they've already received. The Madison's clerk's office says over 19,000 absentee ballots have been issued for the 2022 spring election, but only around 9,700 have been returned just days before the election. 
So if you still have your absentee ballot, it may be too late to mail it back. Instead, consider dropping it off at either the city clerk's office downtown, at your polling place next Tuesday, or at any in-person absentee voting location around the city. Another reminder, tomorrow is the last day to register to vote before the election. While you can still register at your polling location the day of the election, you will still need to provide some proof of residency. This can either be through a utility bill, a bank statement, a paycheck, or any government document. A full list of accepted forms of proof of residence can also be found at the City of Madison's website. And finally, polling locations may have changed around Madison due to redistricting, so be sure to check where else but the City of Madison's website to confirm your polling location for Tuesday's election. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 470 confirmed cases of the virus yesterday, with only just above 3% of all tests coming back positive over the past week. There were no reported deaths from the virus across the state yesterday, with a total of 12,790 people who have died of COVID in Wisconsin since the pandemic began. Here in Dane County, there were 113 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, as 26 people remain hospitalized from the virus across our county. And now on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout heads to Wanakee to look at the final contested race on the Dane County Board this coming Tuesday. The Dane County Board's District 25 sits in the northern part of Dane County and contains the village of Wanakee. Incumbent Tim Kiefer has served on the board since 2012 and works as a criminal defense lawyer in Madison. Kiefer is one of the few conservative voices on the board, having recently voted to end Dane County's mask mandate in January and to increase the budget of the Dane County Sheriff's Department last year. Both of those resolutions failed. Kiefer says that he is seeking re-election to focus on public safety issues in his district. I believe we need to have more sheriff's deputies on the roads protecting us. I think that's particularly important for those of us who live in Wanakee, where essentially the only way in or out of our community is on the county highways. I'm really going to try to focus on public safety, not just the deputies on the roads, but also making sure that the, the jail gets fixed because without a jail, that's one component of the whole criminal justice system for keeping people safe. and. Um, we need to, to get that project done. So I think the biggest issue that's before the voters um, is the issue of public safety, and that's something I'm really committed to. He's facing off against challenger Carlos Umpierre. In a statement, Umpierre told WORT that running and connecting with individual voters has been exciting and exhilarating, and that he wants to create safe streets and a focus on basic government services. Umpierre was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, moving to the mainland U.S. in 2002. He moved to the Wanakee area in 2020 and currently works at a private financial institution in Madison. On the Carlos Umpierre for Dane County Board Facebook page, the only online presence for his campaign, Umpierre said that he is passionate about both freedom of speech and freedom of religion, though he did not expand on where he sees this issue in Dane County. Umpierre also stated on his Facebook page that he did not support how Dane County handled the pandemic. 
He said that both of his two daughters were greatly affected when schools were shut down in the beginning of the pandemic, and that the impacts of the overreaching decisions are only now starting to become known. Kiefer says that one of his biggest issues he sees affecting the county in the next two years is the Dane County Jail. He says that the current jail in the city county building is unsafe and outdated, and that if action isn't taken soon, the jail may be forcibly closed by either a court ruling or a natural disaster event that would make the jail unsafe. Kiefer says he also wants to tackle deteriorating roadways that connect Wanakee to Madison. Highway M, which is the highway that crosses the north side of Lake Mendota, that is basically a one point was a rural country road and gradually has turned into more of a busy highway and it's got way too much traffic and it's just unsafe. Um, there's no safe place for pedestrians. There's no safe place for bicycles. And so Highway M is going to be extensively re-engineered to make it able to handle more traffic as well as to provide bike paths and bike lanes. And so it, it's a project that needs to get done. And I, w- I want to be on the county board to, to see that project through. Kiefer tells the Wisconsin State Journal that he's not sure what issues his opponent is running on, but he says that regardless, the board has important upcoming votes that will make learning on the job difficult. I know as for myself, however, I have 10 years of experience on the county board. A county board, like any other job, benefits from having experience. And I think now is a time with big decisions coming up on the county board, you, you want to have someone experienced representing Wanakee. This is not necessarily a good time to be learning on the job when we have big votes coming up on things like the jail renovation project and county budget and public safety and transportation. The spring 2022 election takes place next Tuesday. Polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Since launching last fall, Madison CARES program has already responded to almost 250 calls for service, where paramedics, and crisis workers respond to mental health emergencies across the city. And while the program originally focused only on the downtown area, the city announced earlier this week that the CARES program has expanded to help people citywide. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wighout spoke with Assistant Chief of Medical Affairs Shay Sedman with the Madison Fire Department to get an update on the CARES program and what this expansion means for the future of the program. So, Che, to start things off, how has the CARES program been going for these last few months? Well, I think that the CARES program is going as expected. Um, The uh, team has been um, on 273 calls since they started responding in uh, September 1st of last year. And um, as far as 
the operations go. The calls from the 911 center have been triaged appropriately to the team. Uh, they seem to be having a good effect on the citizens that they're engaging with out there. Um, we're collecting a lot of really good data as this is a pilot program for us. Um, we're really focused on collecting as much data as possible around um, not just the, you know, the, the number of calls, but of course the outcomes of those experiences and making sure that we're doing the right thing. So I, I'm certainly satisfied um, with the way things are going. We've got a lot of support from the community and um, you know we're just looking to expand um, as soon as uh, possible um, you know there's obviously budgetary effects to that um, and uh, we're just hoping to be continuously supported moving forward now you mentioned the expansion and I want to get to that in a moment but you also yeah. mentioned uh, the positivity coming from the community when yeah. you or when people are out on these CARES calls, what are the reactions from the people that you are serving? What have they had to say to you? Yeah, so I, I think the, the big takeaway is that, you know, the 273 responses they've been on are 273 times that police officers didn't have to respond to behavioral health emergencies. And um, whether or not those police officers um, are doing their jobs really well and are um, approaching these situations um, in a professional manner, some folks just do not like seeing a person with a badge and a gun walk through their door. And so I think just that initial approach from the team that has a experienced crisis worker and a community paramedic that are able to walk into someone's home and help de-escalate that situation. We've gotten a lot of good feedback about um, the fact that it's just it's a much more appropriate introduction to the 911 system for a lot of folks that are having behavioral health concerns. And, um, you know, we've gotten a few emails here and there thanking us for what we're doing. But the big thing is that the providers that are actually visiting folks in the community, um, they've gotten a lot of positive responses back from the people that they've been visiting. Um, you know, the, the folks that we see out there um, have uh, most likely had a, a history of other incidents where 911 was called for them because of behavioral health issues. And um, if they had a previous incident that they weren't happy with um, because of the nature of the response, I really think that this new initiative is providing them um, a, a much more pleasant way to deal with their, their situation. And now, as you mentioned earlier, it was announced earlier this week that the CARES program is looking to expand. So I have to ask, yeah. what does that look like? What will look different or what currently looks different about your service compared to when it first started back in September? Yeah, so after uh, about three months of responding, um, pretty much from September through December, we recognized that the call volume that the team was receiving um, was a little slower than we thought it was going to be. Um, they, they work five days a week, eight hours a day right now during this pilot program. And there were days where they would only receive one call or two calls. Some days they would receive four or five, but some days they would receive none. And so we, we recognized that the team had capacity to expand geographically. And so we were originally only responding in the central district of the city of Madison, which is the central police district, which runs from basically the Yohara River to Park Street. So it's pretty much all of the isthmus and downtown area. Um, and because we weren't as busy as we had thought we were going to be, we decided uh, in the middle of December to expand citywide. So since then, um, we've been responding around the whole city of Madison, and our call volume has, has obviously picked up quite a bit because of the geographic expansion. And um, the, the team at this point, for the eight hours that they're working per day, they're, they're pretty much busy um, pretty much all throughout the day now. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the incident itself that takes time. There's um, 
charting to be done afterwards, all of the patient documentation. We also do follow-up calls with people uh, the following day or two days after the intervention just to see how they're doing. So there, there's a lot of other work behind the scenes that the team needs to do to provide good services. So at this point, with the one team that we have responding citywide, five days a week, eight hours a day, we've pretty much reached the capacity of the team. So what we're hoping is that in June, we'll be able to put another team on the streets. Um, the first team that's active right now is it is on the uh, near east side on Willie Street at fire station number three. And so we hope to put a team on the near west side just to get a better coverage of the city um, in June. So we still won't be running 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week at that point. Um, that's hopefully one of the, the next big expansion periods um, that um, maybe will happen next year, maybe maybe not, depending on the budget. But we um, we have the budget right now to expand to a second team in June. And so that's the idea is just to be able to um, capture more of these incidents um, with our crisis response team, because as it sits right now, quite a few of the calls that they go on, another call comes in during the time that they're actually um, with another person. So um, when those calls come in and the crisis team isn't available, the CARES team is already um, with someone else, then that call goes back to a law enforcement response. So the, so the expansion will help us basically just cover more patients during the day. And now looking at things logistically, over this past couple of months here since you started, have you run into any logistical problems covering, uh, let's just say, the entire city there? And on that note, what's sort of being done to address some of these problems? Yeah, so I think the first thing that we noticed was that initially we were responding in a minivan that did not have lights and sirens in it. And when we were only in the central district, that was appropriate because we were able to get to places in a quick enough amount of time that was appropriate for a 911 response. But we recognized very quickly that once we started responding citywide, that we needed to put our responders in a vehicle that had license sirens. So um, in, um, in January, we, we started using um, a fire department Ford Interceptor that has license sirens on it just to make sure that if we have to go to the far west side, from fire station number three on Williamson Street that we can get there in a timely fashion. So that, that was one thing that we did have to change. And, and the reason that we originally were responding in a minivan is because we had gotten feedback from the community and from other mental health providers that, um, you know, that emergency service vehicles showing up to somebody's home could actually escalate them. And so we try to be very thoughtful now that we're using an emergency vehicle with lights and sirens about making sure that we, you know, turn the, turn the sirens and lights off down the street um, so that the person that we're responding to doesn't become aggravated by that fact. Um, but unfortunately, because we're covering such a large area with one team, we do need that emergency vehicle. Um, the, the other thing that we were um, made aware of very early on was that it, it would re really be best if our providers were in civilian type clothing. So again, even, even a fire department uniform with a badge on it um, can possibly be escalating for some folks. You know, we just don't want to look authoritarian. Um, we um, wear those civilian clothes with credentials around our necks so that, um, you know, we look more like mental health providers rather than law enforcement or fire fighters. Um, and, and that, I believe, is, is helping us as well um, be more accepted by the folks that we visit. Um, so other than that, I don't think there's anything logistically that um, has really been a barrier for us. We've tried to work through some of those issues. Um, I can only say that, um, you know, it's, it's difficult for the 911 center 
to know the exact resource to send at the exact moment. And we, we meet with the 911 center every other week to go over calls that have come in and make sure that we're reviewing what we're doing. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a, an example of that is that we, we try to be very safe with our responders, right? Because there's no police officer on our team. We had to make sure that we weren't sending our crisis response team into a dangerous situation. In other words, um, an incident that involved weapons or somebody acting really violently. Um, and so initially, you know, if they got a report that, for instance, a homeless person had a pocket knife on them, you know, initially they were like, um, a little concerned about the fact there was a weapon and maybe they would send police along. And, and we quickly realized that, you know what, most homeless folks have some sort of pocket knife on them, right? But it, it's important that the CARES team be able to respond to those calls still. And it's really more about the person's behavior. As long as they're not acting violently, we realize it's okay to send the crisis response team, even if there is you know, noted that there's maybe a weapon on scene. So we've tried to make some of those safety adjustments, um, which has been able to increase our call volume a little bit. And and really, it, we, we do want to err on the side of safety to keep our providers safe, but we also want to be able to send a response that is going to be appropriate for the patient. And that's that's really a sweet spot that, it, that is difficult to hit for the 911 center. So we're constantly working with them on making sure we're refining the whole process. And, Shay, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? Um, well, I, I'd say that I uh, appreciate all the support from the Common Council and the mayor's office. Um, the, the Madison Police Department has been very supportive of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, a lot of mental health providers in our community have been very supportive. And so um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for our workers, certainly, that are working really hard out there to do what's right. And, um, you know, like I said in the beginning of the call, uh, the 273 responses that we've been on, um, we hope that we've made a difference and that we've been able to um, provide an intervention that's more appropriate than just sending a single law enforcement officer. And we hope that we've able, been able to refer people to the appropriate resources in the community. I've been talking with Assistant Chief of Medical Affairs, Chase Stedman, with the Madison Fire Department about the expansion of the CARES program, which now operates citywide. Chase, thank you so much for talking with me here today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up. Transparency Talk digs to find what we can and cannot ask from government about elections. Fermenting wort goes to the Wisconsin Brewing Company to learn about box. And Radio Tipstone talks with an artist who looms right out of her own pocket. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in with some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to talk about open records and open government. This week, with Wisconsin spring election on the horizon, 
Kamenek and Chester talk about what election records you are and aren't entitled to. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined, as is tradition, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how y'all holding up this week? Hey, Joan, I'm doing good, and I'm ready for next week. Why are you ready for next week, Tom? I'm going to get out there, and I'm going to go vote. Heck yeah. All right, I'm also going to vote. You know, voting, it's one of the main charges to us as residents of this democracy. It's like, go vote, pay your taxes, Always use your turn signal when you're when you're turning in a direction. Those are the primary charges of those of us who live in a democracy. So today we're going to have an election themed episode about what election records you are entitled to. Let's take this from a local and a state level at the local level. What records can I get if I want them? Yeah, so just a bit on structure of how this works, your local municipal clerks, this is your towns, your village and your city. They handle the elections, they run them in their local town halls and handle the wards and everything. But that all gets coordinated up one level at the county. So county clerks actually kind of collect all that together and report it. So sometimes you may be looking for records from the county clerk. Sometimes you may be looking for them for the municipal clerk. But if they're good clerks, they'll tell you which one you should be going to if you've asked the wrong place. So it may not be surprising, but you cannot get the actual ballots. You do not get to know how individual voters voted. We have secret elections in this state, uh, but you can get lots of other things from your local clerks, like the poll books, the big things that everybody signed. You can go look at that. There are forms that they need to fill out, like inspector statements, inspectors of elections and absentee ballot logs. You can also get copies of individual voter registration forms and the envelopes that were sent back with absentee ballots in them. So not the absentee ballots themselves, but you can see the envelopes and see who signed them and see where they came from. So you too can conduct your own election investigation. But why why would somebody want access to these? You know, jokes aside, why would I want inspector statements, for example? To see if everything is kosher and make sure and get some confidence of everything was done properly and uh, those are filed on a, on a regular basis. You can take a look at uh, things like absentee ballot logs and look at the numbers and make sure numbers of votes match up. Um, I haven't done a lot of this myself, but I've represented a few clients who have. And, and it's detailed and it can be complex, but there's interesting information out there. Mm-hmm. And then moving up the ladder, if you want to get access to stuff from the state, From what I've heard, it gets a little bit more difficult. You got to go through the folks at the Wisconsin Elections Commission, correct? That would be the bipartisan commission that has recently come under fire. Yeah. So the WEC is what replaced the GAB, the Government Accountability Board, if people know their history. Uh, The Government Accountability Board handled both ethics and elections. Now there is a separate Ethics Commission, which I basically never hear about in the news, and the Elections Commission, which gets a lot more attention. So this is the state agency you want to go to for information about voting. And they they put out a whole bunch of free statistical information, getting total numbers of registered voters, votes cast within a municipality or certain ward. You can get all that stuff for free. If you want registration records, this is the voter rolls themselves, you're going to pay anywhere from $30 for a small request to up to $12,500 for the whole kit and caboodle. 
And then you've also got voter roll cleanup records. What's a what's a cleanup record, Tom? So the Wisconsin Election Commission is responsible for keeping the rolls clean. If somebody dies, they need to be removed. If somebody moves out of the state, they need to be removed. Uh, but also they double check things like same day registrations. Wisconsin does allow does allow that. Not every state does, but there's a lot of steps that the WEC follows on a regular basis to check out the validity of those same day registrations. So, so those kind of cleanup records are available too. There are plenty of uh, non-candidate organizations. They run all the ads that instead of saying vote for or vote against somebody, they say, call your representative and tell them how terrible of a job they're doing. They don't <laughs> officially say vote for or vote against, uh, but those those groups are all still registered. And you know, WAC is a commission, and that means that its members hold meetings open publicly. So that is something else you can watch or go listen to. And let's not forget, as as is true with any government board or agency or whatever, not only can you request the records themselves, you can also request things like communications, internal memos, emails. You know, if they're really feeling generous, they may even be able to search their text. But as we've talked about uh, in the past on this, that gets a little bit hairy. <laughs> yes, it does. That's been an issue lately. Uh, but you're absolutely right that it, this is a government agency. It does work. They have desks and people are at them or people are working from home too, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes and you can get a glimpse into that through records. Like you said, inter internal communications or memos are a great way to learn what they're doing besides the obvious uh, stuff that gets put up publicly themselves. And then the final thing I wanted to talk about for this episode was, you know, we got we got the election coming up here in a few days. I wanted to know if I could figure out anything about the candidates who are running, to which I was greeted by a all caps no in the prep doc. Why is that, Tom? Why, why can I get certain documents about elected officials, but not candidates for those offices? Because a campaign is not a government entity. It is, a campaign or the candidate is this private person or private organization who is trying to become a government official. And they're not there yet, so their records aren't open to the public. However, two things. One is, even for an incumbent who is already a government official, they need to keep their campaign completely firewalled off from their government work. They cannot campaign on state time. That means that what they're doing on state time should not look anything like uh, what their campaign is doing. So, you know, theoretically, you should not be seeing any campaigning when you request their government official records. And if you found some, congratulations, you may have just uncovered <laughs> a crime. <laughs> Go get yourself a beer. You uncovered a crime, then report it to the appropriate authorities. However, we can get copies of campaign statements and certain campaign documentation. Yeah, campaigns have to file documents on a regular basis with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So you can go there to get these. And these are the financial forms, the things that tell tell the public, uh, here are our sources of revenue, everybody who's donated to us, and here's how we've spent all of our money. And you can get other things like the declarations of candidacy, so the forms they fill out to become a candidate, and nomination papers. So you can see who all signed saying, I want this person on the ballot. Yeah, and I know a lot of those are available on like the Election Commission's website, but boy, oh boy, if you can, in your first try, navigate the Elections Commission's website and find candidate documents on your first go without somebody showing you through, whoever does that is a puzzle master in my book. I had to have it shown to me like four times before I finally got it. Anyway. Yeah, I'm the same way where it, it, I've done it before and gone to look at them, but I can never remember and it always takes me a while. 
All right, we have come to the end of our time for this week's episode, for which I've been joined, as always, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. So everybody go vote and remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Our new feature focuses on the tradition and art form of beer brewing. This week on Fermenting Wart, feature producer Colin Morgan traveled to the Wisconsin Brewing Company in Verona to have a conversation with brewer James Kramer about Bach beer. This is Colin with Fermenting Wart. Today we're talking about Bach beer. It is Bach season. Uh, most people don't know that, but Bach's can be consumed throughout the year, but right now is really when breweries around the world are coming out with their Bach beer. So we decided to talk about Bach's today. James, so from your understanding, where does a Bach beer come from traditionally, and what does Bach even mean? Bach originated in southern Germany, uh, specifically in the Munich area, in a little town called Einbeck. But the Bavarian accent, they pronounced it Einbach. And Einbach literally in German translates to billy goat. So that's why, and they shorten it to Bach. So that's why you see goats associated with Bachs. Like Celebrator that has the goat on the, the bottle. Exactly. Or Wisconsin Brewing Company's goat, my Bach. A lot of Bach beers have kick, that's what people say. Yes, a kick from the goat. That's right. <laughs> so there are a couple different types of Bach beer. Uh, what makes a Bach different from any other beer? And what are the styles of Bach? So a Bach, they're associated with Lent and Easter. And this is when the monks were fasting. They made a high alcohol, uh, nutritional malt beverage. And they believe that the stronger brew with more grain involved in it is what allowed them to satiate their hunger. Um, to just really boil it down to the essence, strong German lager. Very malty, minimal hop presence. Hops are really big right now, but these traditional styles have stood the test of time for centuries because they are so good. They let the grain shine. The art form and the, the beauty of, of those, those styles that have been brewed for centuries, that, that's something that's really special and really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, anytime a, a style that started in a monastery setting that is perpetuated to this day, um, I think that says a lot to the character of the beer and the appeal to the style. Obviously, the popularity. People enjoy them. They don't even necessarily know they're drinking it because the market right now is so saturated. They might not know that there's this amazing traditional style, but they're out there. This is the time of year. It's big. So when Wisconsin Brewing Company is making a Bach beer. What do you guys do differently for that Bach beer than a different beer that you're brewing, a different brand that you're brewing? Uh, Kirby, he loves traditional style and he's very particular and he wants a beer that tastes like something that you get out of a bottle or it, off of a draft line in Germany. So when he makes a Bach, it's gonna taste like a Bach that you would order from a Munich beer festival. And it's definitely in, I, I can, you can tell in ours, uh, in our goat, our Maybach, it has, it's, it's all malt, there's minimal hops at all, almost no aroma of hops. And, you know, we step mash, so we do slightly more complicated mashing schedule. And 
it really just brings the finished product to a place where you pour a glass of it, you get the aroma of pastoral fields and a little taste of the old world. Great for the still cold and wet season, uh, but not quite uh, uh, warm enough where you're gonna be wanting something lighter. Right. So what do you look for in a quality, well-brewed box? What I look for is, um, I, I want it to be true to form. I want it to be mineral, I don't want to taste hops. I want grain to come through. I want a nice, warm alcohol presence, but it doesn't have to, you know, it's not supposed to be so strong that it burns. You know, these are beers that are between six and 7%. So it's gonna be bigger than your standard light lagers and things like that, but it's nice enough that you can have a few and uh, appreciate them as they're going down. So we discussed a little bit about the, the goat bock that we've got at Wisconsin Brewing Company. Uh, there's a different bock on tap. Yes. Uh, I had that the last time I was here, you graciously gave me a pour. Uh, and uh, so what are the differences between these two box? Uh, one's a my bock, uh, the other one is a rice box. Yeah, a wild rice bock, or as the First Nation people referred to it, manumen. We use that as uh, an adjunct or an added ingredient that does not fall under acceptable German purity laws, but it makes a fantastic beer. Uh, it brings, if you've ever worked with wild rice, you're going to know that when you throw wild rice into water and you heat it up to near boiling temperatures, it emits this fruity fragrance that I had no idea could come from a rice grain. Um, but yeah, this wild rice, uh, we, all, we get all of it from Minnesota. They're still doing a lot of it. Uh, Northern Wisconsin does a lot for some, uh, we still get ours brewing ingredients we get ours from minnesota um the smell in the brewery when it's happening is just otherworldly it's divine um and those flavors are then encapsulated in the finished beer and you get this fruitiness and this nuttiness that you don't expect from you know a typical german lager beer uh and, and they complement each other real well because again it's all about the malt. It's not about the hops. It's not about the latest, coolest, trendy hop, or it's not about sour, or it's not about dessert flavors. It's about taking grain and letting the grain shine. And then we take another grain that you don't normally think would go into a beer and the two together, you know, it's like peanut butter and jelly. It's, it's just such a beautiful thing. As far as a Bach beer, um, it's really unique. The fruity character is just, it's something you just have to try to understand it. One last question. Sure. Uh, so you have two Bach beers on tap in Wisconsin. Uh, for newer beer enthusiasts, what would you recommend mm. them to try? Uh, there's some traditional styles that I think everyone should try, um, but uh, I think that asking brewers is, is really really cool and really important because they know what what people really need to get into yeah um i definitely i i got a little list here because i wanted to make sure i called out the ones that are very important to me uh, i came from the great dane and they love their box they have a velvet hammer bock fantastic beer uh, and right now on tap they have my bock so uh, those are definitely approachable easy to get into Shiner Bach out of Texas is one of the few production Bach beers that is, you know, it's it's got a presence. Nuglaris Gyrator, I know that when we heard about it coming out of Nuglaris, all of us 
uh, brewers here at WBC were so excited to try it when we did. We all loved it. It's great. And then, uh, you know, then there's traditional German ones, uh, Spaten Optimator and uh, Pauliner Salvatore. I think those are like the two, if you want to go real old world German beer, start with those. Go head first into box. You're not going to be disappointed. For WRT News, this is Fermenting Wort. I'm Colin, and thank you very much, James. This was a great conversation. It's a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. It's 6.49 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Marianne Fairbanks is an assistant professor in the Design Studies Department at UW-Madison, and she may be able to help you find a bit of zen. Fairbanks, Fairbanks focuses on textiles and investigates the connection between pliable fabrics and architectural structure as a way to solve big picture challenges like harnessing solar power. Now, Fairbanks is also the creator of the Hello Loom, it's a laser cut loom about the size of a cell phone. It's portable and it invites you to stop scrolling and start weaving. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Fairbanks tells contributor Jennifer Fields that she finds peace in the repetitive aspect of weaving. And the Hello Loom is her gift of a little bit of portable zen. When I started this project called Weaving Lab um, back in 2016, the intention was that I could invite people in to have that experience. And then I quickly came to realize that many people didn't have time or maybe, you know, just couldn't come, you know, and they, they could stop in and they seemed very curious and then they were on their way. Well, that was, I guess, my initial realization and like, well, that's not the end of the experience. I want them to be able to have something to take with them so they can continue to explore these ideas on their own. And that's where the portability really came into my desire to, to have people experience weaving, participate in weaving, play with it, um, use it as a, you know, not only as a form of creativity, but a form of expression. And so then that's when I first thought about uh, using a laser cutter to, you know, make maybe a modern version of that pot holder loom that you're talking about. I think the main difference between um, maybe that and, and this loom that I've worked towards making is building in the efficiencies of, of the design, you know, getting the Hello Loom, which was originally called the Pocket Loom. Um, and I, I think even before that, I called it the iPhone loom because it was the shape of my iPhone at the time and I wanted it to um, be pocketable just like the iPhone. You know, everyone has that in their hand all the time and I wanted people to sort of replace that technology, the, the screen technology with this um, loom as a, as a, way, as a mode of um, making, like I said, as an emotive expression. So I was really leaning towards that iPhone and saying like, hey, look, let's get off these screens and let's Let's experience materials and 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 leave left to right instead of you know scrolling all day. Uh, so I I worked thinking about the laser cutter in particular because I thought well here's a way I can 
you know, mass produce these kind of cheaply and maybe give them away. And so initial tests were done with um, sort of like a chipboard or, you know, other really cheap materials because the goal really was to make as many as I could to be able to hand people and say, hey, here, here, take some yarn, take some, take this tool and, and go home and, and play around. One of the things, Marianne, that I, that I think about and my brief exposure to weaving. And one of the things I think about is that it's it's like moving meditation. Mm. Does your weaving, t- is it transformative for you? Does it take your brain out of these big ideas and get to your personal flow? Mm. And if so, where is that space? What does weaving do for you? Is it mm. a place of refuge or is it something that as you're doing it, you're thinking about these big things? I think for me, it does provide a lot of, meditational qualities like I really you know some people really don't like setting up the loom because it's such a long and sort of tedious project Um, but I actually like all the parts in the you know the winding if you really slow down to think about it and your your hands are touching that thread over and over again each you know so hundreds of yards of thread have been individually touched by your hands and I like sort of how it makes you slow down. And so to your point, I think it's, for me, I find that meditation and these repetitive processes that are really involved in weaving. And so I think for me, part of the meditational processes in the setup is in like getting ready, is in the preparing of the yarns to be woven. And then the weaving actually, I feel like happens more quickly for me. And I don't maybe find the flow as much in that particular moment as I do in in the setup. Um, but I will say that I've extended that question around weaving being a meditational act to one of my projects in the weaving lab, which is asking people, you know, is weaving meditational? And I don't, you know, I don't hope to provide an answer for that. Instead, I hope to provide a platform for exploring that because I think for each person, of course, it's going to be different. And so there's no one answer. I think that having a craft or a, a creative process be a place of, um, reflection and 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 solace for your mind is actually obviously right now especially very great and so I encourage people to sort of think about that and and find those places in their own practice but for me I love repetitive processes and I think that's one of the reasons that I came to textiles and fibers as a discipline in the first place it's like there's something really rewarding for me and in, in in repeating an action. And so that's maybe where my mind and my body come together in, in, medita- in a more meditational state. It's, it's just such a tremendous gift to give someone. Like to, to give someone not only a skill, something that they can pass on that could give them a better understanding of how fibers and how things work around them, but to give someone that, that moment of peace. You know, maybe they find their peace in putting it together. Maybe they find their peace in selecting the yarns. But you're, what you're providing folks is something that you're, you're helping people literally, and it sounds so Barbara Walters, but you're helping them weave memories. You're helping them create this fabric out of, like, memories and new experiences, and they'll be able to see where they messed it up, and they'll be able to see where it works. So it's really this thing that it's, you know, I think when you said pocket, Weaver, I immediately thought like pocket fishermen, pocket this, pocket that, those old Ronco commercials. But it's really on a much deeper level than that. Like you're giving someone a skill and experience and then evidence of that skill and experience and the, and the ability or the 
perhaps um, what would you call that? The the I guess the ability or the likelihood that it will become a nostalgic thing for them, that it will become something, an object that keeps them connected to that moment in their life where they found that peace in their in their pocket. Mm, absolutely, I I love that, and you know I I guess if that is an outcome of this, I would be so thrilled. And I think one of the things I guess one of the things I will say, you know, it's interesting to come back to that that um, potholder loom versus the hello loom is that, you know, often when people approach it, they say, well, what is it going to be? You know, what is the little little weaving that I make going to be? You know, it, oh, it looks like the size of a rug for a dollhouse, or could I make it into a bracelet? And I think for me, as someone who's had a ton of experience with weaving, I'm, you know, if you want to make it into that, I am fine. That's great. That's amazing. But one of the things that I I was really adamant about was, um, you know, once we realized when the design was happening that we could make a little stand so that when you're done, you could leave it on the frame and just and look at it and and really appreciate the work that you've put in and the and the beauty of of the woven cloth. And so for me, I think focusing again on like not what is it going to be as a utilitarian thing, but like what is what a beautiful object that I've just made. What a beautiful um, series of intersections. Like let's, let's just stand back and appreciate it. So I think that's really a critical, you know, thing to mention is that I, I really do want to focus on the process in a way and, and the outcome in that it's a reflection of the time that you've spent with that process, if that makes sense. So you know, not moving directly into here it is a pot holder. Ta-da, now it's going to be a pot holder in my kitchen, which again is awesome. I love the utilitarian aspects of cloth, but I also think we can slow down and think about all of those other things. You know, like you said, is is this a memento of this time that I've spent? Is this, um, what does it mean for me to, to make this? And, and could I embed messages into this that are abstract, of course, right? It's not direct. Uh, but it's, I think it's a form of communication, and I like the idea that you sit and look at this textile and be proud of it and have it um, be embedded with all the things that you were thinking about during that time that you wove it. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, Colin Morgan, and Jonathan Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiki helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Stay tuned for the Perpetual Notion Machine. WORT Madison. Madison.